Welcome to the Communications and Sharing Knowledge series of the Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation Brave Spaces podcast. Tamara Soma is an assistant professor at the School of Resource and Environmental Management at Simon Fraser University, where she conducts research on issues pertaining to food system planning, community-based research, waste management, and the circular economy. Prior to joining SFU, she was a postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Geography and Planning at the University of Toronto and the Food Equity Coordinator at New College, University of Toronto. Her dissertation investigates the issue of urban food waste in Indonesia by exploring the transformation of household food provisioning practices due to factors such as urbanization, the modern supermarket revolution, the growth of the middle class, and market liberalization. She's a co-editor of the Rutledge Handbook of Food Waste. She has written for the Huffington Post, Policy Options, and Alternatives Journal. She's frequently interviewed by media such as the BBC, Global News, the Toronto Star, the Globe and Mail, CBC, and TVO's Agenda. She's a Joseph Armand Bombardier Shirk CGS Doctoral Fellow, an International Development Research Centre Doctoral Award recipient, and a Shirk Top 5 Storyteller Finalist, and a Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation Scholar from 2014. Tamara, great to have you here. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how communication and knowledge sharing have been central to your work? Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. So yes, communication and knowledge sharing is central to my work um, at Simon Fraser University and also at the Food Systems Lab, because as a scholar, I do view myself as a public servant. In my work, I'm constantly dealing with complex systems problem and being a good communicator and being passionate about sharing the knowledge is a key part, uh, I believe, of serving the public. So at Simon Fraser University, which prides um, itself as a community-engaged university, I serve as the researcher in residence of the SFU Community Engaged Research Initiative. Uh, we also call it a CIRI. Um, and so the hallmark of the work that we do at CIRI is accessible and engaging knowledge mobilization and supporting inclusive participatory research. Just to follow up, I mean, some professors understanding that we, we all work in publicly funded institutions, but some take that responsibility as teaching the students in the room in front of them and publishing in scholarly journals. Can you just say a bit more about how for you, the public dimension leads you to be reaching outwards more? Absolutely. You know, the, the public dimension for me, of course, I do a lot of work engaging students, including students outside of my department, outside of my faculty, but I also work a lot with community organizations. In fact, for my work, various food community organizations are the people that I do uh, hope to serve, particularly because many, you know, many of the issues that I work in the food system are particularly issues that impact them, issues around food access and food insecurity, issues around um, food injustice. And so I'm very passionate about reaching beyond the academic institution level to the public. Tamara, when you're mentioning engaging with communities and you're talking about issues such as food insecurity, you're evoking, I think, working with some vulnerable people. How do you create relationships of trust and accountability in the work you do? That's a great question. You know, creating a relationship of trust and accountability, um, you know, can take time. And it's important for me, it's important not to rush 
the building of trust because you know often I, I find in academia where you know we're um, pushed by deadlines we're pushed by you know the grant re- reporting mechanism and and you know you, you can't rush that um, and so creating long-lasting relationships for me start with stating one's intention so I, I state my intention this is what I hope to do this is what I hope to, you know this is how I hope to serve you um, and also maintaining honesty and listening um, and and for me also because you know as a researcher it's not that we're just the expert, but we're also going on a learning journey. So being accountable is also about giving credit where credit is due, admitting gaps and mistakes when mistakes are made, and always going through a process of bettering oneself as as also as an individual and as a scholar. And do you you loop back the people you work with? I mean, do do they see the final results of your research? Absolutely. I think that one of the the biggest issue, especially when it comes to researchers, and I also work in Indonesia and in other parts of the world. And so one of this issue is called like the parachute researcher, where they come, you know, they get what they want, and then they just leave. And then they they publish in an academic journal, because that's what is valued often in academia. But then, you know, the people, they don't see any outcome of it. You know, they don't they don't have a report back mechanism. And, and I think that's something that I am very passionate about is to make sure that there is a there is accountability in terms of the outcome of the knowledge itself. So you don't see yourself just uh, sort of swooping in to extract data from people. No, absolutely not. Um, in fact, like for me, a lot of the participants who work with our projects are, uh, you know, we we develop long lasting relationships and we continue to collaborate on various projects together. Mm-hmm. You spoke, Tamara. Uh, you certainly expressed a duty to be engaging with other communities, but can you just elaborate a bit? Why is it so important to foster and participate in and navigate conversations across different communities and outside the academy? In 2016, when my colleague Belinda Lee and I uh, founded the Food Systems Lab, we sought to create a space basically where we can address complex systems-related issues by bringing very diverse people together, but not just people who agree with each other. So we felt it's important to also understand and navigate through competing priorities and competing interests. A lot of the work that I do as a professional community planner is, is, is dealing and working with community members who may not always agree agree with one another. And so for us, we do this by deep engagement, a lot of listening, uh, conflict resolution. And I think this is important because, you know, as you probably know, um, increasingly we are polarized as a society. Judgment uh-huh. comes, right? Um, yeah, you know, yeah. the, <laughs> judgment comes very quick and fast in social media. Uh, one often does not get a second chance. And so in my work, we try to create a space for people to be vulnerable, to be honest, because being vulnerable, listening, and suspending judgment can also allow for spaces of healing and the building of relationships with people that would otherwise not build relationships at all. I love what you're talking about uh, concretely. I mean, how do you foster, how do, how do you sustain space where people can be vulnerable in the way you're mentioning? So the building of relationship is key because when people trust that I will um, give them an ear, that I will suspend judgment and just listen even though, you know, I might disagree with it, even though sometimes, you know, their argument or their ideas might actually hurt me personally, but I give them that space to be vulnerable, to be honest and suspend judgment just so I can get a glimpse or a sense of like what, what they feel, how they got to, to that conclusion and maybe some of the deep-rooted causes of the problem and some of the fear that then, you know, gets transformed into a certain um, a- attitudes or behaviors. That's a training that I do uh, for myself, but then I, I hope to build relationship in that way by suspending judgment in some cases. Yeah. 
It's fascinating. You've talked about the kind of the objectives you're, you're trying to pursue. What, what specifically are some of the different media or creative platforms that you use in, when trying to democratize knowledge outside the academy? Oh, that's great. So um, I love storytelling. Oh my gosh, I love storytelling. That's why I entered that short storytellers competition. But so storytelling is something that I grew up learning in my culture. I usually start my class or my presentation with the story, you know, and I think we all know that storytelling and oral traditions are key teaching tools for uh, many indigenous communities here. But so in, in, in addition to storytelling, I also uh, at the Food Systems Lab, we, we love the multimedia approach. So we do a lot of filming of our research output. We upload them on YouTube. I participate in a lot of podcasts like this one. Yeah. Um, and, and of course, media engagement, magazines, newspapers, and what have you. But I also do a lot of public speaking for, you know, public libraries, schools for, uh, for children. And increasingly, I have been doing a lot of speaking to senior groups because they're on Zoom. They can't really meet up um, in person in many cases. So, so they're doing a lot of lunch and learns, um, the senior groups here in, in BC and, and beyond. So I'm, I'm very passionate about supporting them as they seek to, you know, continuing education. And so I, lo- I love connecting with them, um, with seniors. And of course, uh, a lot of our work are made available and accessible on our website. So many people would actually contact the Food Systems Lab after stumbling on our website. And so for the listeners out there, uh, you can check foodsystemslab.ca if you want to learn more about our work. I mean, I've got to say, like, your website is gorgeous, right? Like, it's it's an extraordinarily beautiful site. But I, I find it really intriguing that the combination, uh, I mean, storytelling can sound kind of timeless or, or ancient, but the that you're linking it, that you're using YouTube. It's on the website that you're having lunch and learn over Zoom and so on with seniors. It's a, it seems to me a really beautiful use of traditional techniques in the current moment. Uh, thank you so much. And by the way, I want to credit uh, my colleague, Belinda Lee, because she was the one that um, developed the website. So uh, credit is where credit is due. You've talked, I mean, I'm thinking again about trying to make the outputs of your research accessible to communities and individuals or leaders who might be affected by the results. And you, I mean, you already said, oh, you don't get a second chance and you got to build trust. But do you have any further thoughts on some of the challenges in really trying to make your research accessible? There are many challenges, actually, but maybe I'll talk about a few. So the first one is language. <clears throat> I, was, I was actually honored one time when an academic told me that my research is something that her grandma would understand and would care about, but she wondered if it was academic enough. You know, she, <laughs> it, was a criti- it was an academic critique of like, you know, it makes sense. I think my grandma would care about it and she would totally be motivated to, you know, do something, but is it academic enough? And I think that's a problem, right? I think that's actually a, a problem in academia, uh, that attitude of, you know, why are we making it so complicated, you know, in terms of the lack of accessibility uh, of language? So in general, academic writing is largely inaccessible to the public. There's usually a lot of jargon. It's dense. And so for me, I, I like to synthesize it and make it more accessible. You know, maybe that's also because of my background coming from Indonesia, having had to learn English as a non-English speaker. Um, So I know how important it is to have clear and accessible content for myself (laughs) in a way. 
And also I do a lot of work to translate uh, my, my articles into op-eds, shorter blogs. And for my work in Indonesia, I also present in the Indonesian language and um, try to write some short pieces in Indonesia because obviously if I am publishing in an English journal, it's not necessarily going to help the Indonesian people. Language is definitely one challenge. And I will just say one more is the issue of paywall. And I think we all know this. And the thing is, increasingly research grants, you know, like SHRC um, will allow us to set aside money to, um, you know, make our paper open access. But some of the fees are so egregious that, you know, personally, I would rather use that money to support uh, and pay for more students or even, right, pay more community participants. It's it's just, it's yeah, it's unreasonable. It's thousands of dollars. And you look and you say like, this could be, you know, what else could I do with that money, right? Yeah, what, one of them I saw was eleven thousand dollars U.S. Oh my gosh! Whoa, 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 whoa! Your your comments about language—it's—it's it's really interesting. It reminds me, quite early in my career, uh, the editor of an international journal gently told me, you know, when returning the peer reviews, that I should remember that there would be lots of readers for whom English was not the first language, and uh, mm. I don't always live up to that. But it, it's it's a good reminder to communicate more simply than we often do. Mm-hmm, Can you think? You're clearly super intentional and committed to trying to democratize knowledge. And I wonder if there's an example where you've really sensed the meaningful impact from doing so. Yeah, that is so important, particularly important in the work that I'm currently doing. Um, So and I just kind of want to tackle this issue of democratization of knowledge because democratizing knowledge can help empower communities. And I would also argue that a shift and I would caveat this with where appropriate, because it's not always appropriate on democratizing the idea of who is the expert. So in my work, you know, we receive a funding from the Shirk New Frontiers grant uh, for a photovoice citizen science food asset project, working with diverse community members in Vancouver, Port Alberni, and in Terrace with uh, the Kitsilas First Nation. Can and we this- just, just sort of interrupt? Can, can you just repeat once more the name of the, the initiative? Oh, yes. Um, so uh, the initiative, so it's a Shirk New Frontiers funded grant um, yep. on a photo voice citizen science food asset project. And we conducted uh, this project in the city of Vancouver. Photo uh, voice? A photo voice. Yes. Yep. Photo voice. Do you, do you know what photo voice is? Maybe I should explain to the listener. Please tell us just a bit more. Okay. Vo- photo voice is actually very simple. So it's basically photography and storytelling. And so connecting the two together. So uh, citizen scientists or participants would take photos, um, you know, depending on the research question, depending on the the project itself of, uh, for example, in our case, uh, food assets, food places and spaces and, and culture, you know, cultural food assets that matter to them, that is meaningful to them. They would take photos of that and then we would connect and then we would go through the photos because uh, what is, there's that saying, right? Photos um, is worth a thousand words, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. So it's a really beautiful and very fun um, research approach uh, to do. And so in this particular project, the citizen science are the experts. So they have a say in the research outcome, research design, um, and we as researchers facilitate training in photography, but we learn from the citizen science scientists about their, you know, the key food sites, the key food knowledge and key food assets that are critical for their food, you know, for their food system resiliency. And so it was really meaningful to see so many of the citizen scientists feeling 
empowered, you know, to be part of the research process. And that is actually the power of democratizing knowledge. And I, I would just say one thing is that, you know, often, I, I don't know about you, but like sometimes for me and for others, maybe you feel relief when a study is done. But in fact, in, in this particular <laughs> case, so many of the citizen scientists in the Photo Voice Project actually asked me and wish for it to be continued. So, you know, I think that it's important to have, you know, to democratize knowledge in that way, but also to make sure that there's a medium of outcome that will then, you know, make the citizen scientists proud. And in, in this case, we have photo books that are available in, uh, in the Food Systems Lab website uh, to be viewed. It sounds to me like you're, I mean, you're really empowering people to participate and to share knowledge on their part. I mean, it, it just sounds like a completely different level from having people sit in a focus group or do a sort of qualitative interview. It sounds very, very, very empowering. Well, I mean, that's kind of the purpose of it. But I will definitely say that in the lab, you know, how we work with uh, even focus groups and qualitative interview is that we give it our all. We we give 100% and we always try to honor and recognize, you know, the fact that many of the participants who are busy are spending their time to support research. And so because of that, we, we try to show our appreciation as much as we can through our mannerism, through our behavior and through thanking, thanking them so much, and of course, paying them when it's a lot of work. You were quite deliberate a moment ago. You, you put in a caveat about sort of, uh, you know, redefining who the expert was where appropriate. You clearly value communities' expertise, but what, what is the space that only the, the university-trained expert nonetheless needs to, to occupy, or what did you mean by that boundary? When it comes to like this kind of caveat of where appropriate in terms of democratizing knowledge, I think that, you know, in the case of the pandemic or in the case of um, health science, not everyone will be the expert in medicine or health science. Um, so I think it's important to also kind of make sure that we, we do listen to the experts. But at the same time, I actually watched something on Netflix, which, again, shows the power of democratizing science or, or knowledge, where there's a, a show where the doctor who is a New York Times columnist, she would be faced like she would hear from all around the world and from around the United States of diseases or illnesses that are very hard to pinpoint. And sometimes it would stumble doctors, you know. And so what she would do is she would actually post it on New York Times, post it post a video of the person dealing with the illness and then kind of democratize it by saying like, hey, everyone around the world, what do you think is the problem here? And then from that, you know, she uses her medical training and uh, to, to actually kind of narrow down, you know, some interesting possibilities that would otherwise not have been thought before. So I think there's a tool for that. But again, like, you know, in the case of the pandemic, you know, not everyone can be experts. No, agreed. You've got such a nuanced perspective on these issues, if you could recommend a, a book or article or video or, or podcast that has informed your views that you would recommend to us, what would that be? Oh, my goodness. This is exciting. Um, we, <laughs> this One, is or exciting. More, you know. <laughs> One or more. One or more. I will ask uh, to recommend to, if that's okay. Of course, um, go. So, okay. The first is the book by, I think you know him, um, 2016 Trudeau scholar Jesse Thistle. Mm -hmm. um, you know, from the ashes. My goodness, it is a book that is at once heartbreaking and hopeful. Um, and it is so amazing to see someone who was, uh, you know, who faced so much hardship and struggle and yet worked so hard to accomplish so much. 
you know, so uh, that book has motivated me to do more work on decolonizing the food system. And actually, my 14 year old son just finished Jesse's book, and he can't believe that I'm I actually know Jesse, you know, so it's like, <laughs> what, you know, Jesse Thistle? I'm like, yes, I do. Um, it is an extraordinary testimony. Yeah? Absolutely. So yeah, he's a hero in our house. And the next one. So the next one is a documentary on Netflix called Salam about the life of Dr. Abdus Salam, who is the first Muslim Nobel Prize winner in physics. And so he came from an impoverished family, won a scholarship to study um, abroad in UK. Uh, he was persecuted because of his faith by his country. And yet even through the persecution and the struggles, uh, he was so passionate about serving the people. And so when he won the Nobel uh, Prize in physics, he used his uh, Nobel Prize to build the International Center for Theoretical Physics and devoted his cause to train scientists from the global south. And so I hope that, you know, one day I might have the opportunity uh, to do the same. So yeah, those those two. <laughs> That's wonderful. Tamara Soma, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Have a great day.